in preparation for the proclamation of the gospel. The word of the Lord comes to us this morning from the first chapter of the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter number 1, verses 24 through 29. If you're reading from the Pew Bible, that would be page 983. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Let us pray together. Oh Lord, we, we rest in you, Lord. You've given us this word. You come to us by your spirit to... Plant us more firmly in this word, to have this word affect our lives, to encourage us, particularly to give us hope, as Paul says here. Lord, may it give us that hope, and may we know more what it means to suffer for this word and to labor for this word. Bless us, Lord, that we will treasure this word. Give us desire, Lord. Give us desire. Ask this for your glory. Amen. One of the, uh, you may have read this online, uh, one of the striking things I read concerning the Olympics uh, was what has happened, not to every, but to some Olympians and many gold medalists uh, after they win the gold medal. Many have been marked with uh, severe depression and alcoholism and drug abuse, arrests. Um, and a lot of it has to do, as, as one of them described, she said, it was like I was on the mountaintop and I went away from the mountaintop into a valley and I knew I was never going to be back there again, ever. And this passage uh, speaks of glory and it speaks of hope. And I would say that there's glory in uh, the Olympic medal, but ultimately, apparently, there's not necessarily any hope in it, right? And what's unusual about this passage is that there's so much suffering in this passage and agonizing labor in this passage, as Paul talks about it, and yet it's framed by joy and it's over a treasure that brings incredible hope. And there's a a great paradox for us, a great paradox, that we among all people could be looked upon as the dregs of the earth in some ways, that we 
lose ourselves and suffer for the sake of others and in many places in the world suffer abominably. And it seems that to other people for nothing. And yet, this band of people suffering for the sake of others can paradoxically be the truly happy people of the world. And that's what's before us here in this passage that really centers on the Word. In fact, uh, think of it this way, suffering for the Word in the first two verses, and then he ends in the last two verses with laboring for the Word. And, and the words for labor are like we get the word agony from one of them, agonizo. So it's, it's agonizing labor for the sake of the Word. And he begins by talking about suffering for this Word. And then in the middle is a description of the glory of this word. Uh, He talks about the mystery and he talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery. The mystery is God's word, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So actually you can see that the reason there's the suffering and the agonizing labor is the middle of the sandwich. And it's the glory of this word, this glorious word that gives us incredible hope. And he even says, I rejoice in these sufferings. And that's what I would have for us. That's the goal of this, is that we would somehow enter into and realize that the whole of our lives are caught up in this stewardship of suffering servanthood for the sake of God's Word. This stewardship. Paul had a particular stewardship as an apostle. But this stewardship, we've been entrusted with this word and we're meant to suffer to make this word known as servants and we're to labor that it be known and that people be mature in Christ because it is such a rich treasure. So Paul, in the first place then, the suffering for the word It's a striking statement, isn't it? When he says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh. That's how it reads in the original. I'm lacking in Christ's afflictions in my flesh. And uh, this has been misunderstood and perverted in many ways. One has been that uh, the, the saints can add on to Christ's suffering and add on to the worth of Christ's suffering. So you can get... You can get Christ's sufferings for benefit, and added to that, you can get the saints' sufferings. They've got a big treasury that you can uh, check out their sufferings as well. Um, But this is emphatically not what Paul is saying. Uh, In fact, the word afflictions here is never used of Christ's sufferings for us. It's never used of his atonement. Uh, A good background to this is Paul's... uh, encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. Remember Paul, Saul at this time, uh, seeking to imprison uh, believers, and he heads off to Damascus to get the believers there, and Christ meets him, uh, knocks him off uh, his feet, uh, blinds him, and those words that that I'm sure Paul never forgot, instead of saying, why are you persecuting my people? I mean, that would be striking enough. Wait, these are your people? I thought I was serving you, God. I thought I was honoring you by getting rid of these people. But it was even more uh, pointed than that. Why are you persecuting me? 
The voice of the Lord, of God Himself. It was the Lord Jesus, but of God Himself saying, You are persecuting me in persecuting these that belong to me. And that's some of the background for this. They can be called Christ's afflictions because Christ is in His body and identifies with His body as they are afflicted. But it's odd that he says what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now, there's nothing lacking in Christ's atoning afflictions. That is, his atoning suffering. It's perfect and it's endless in its benefit for his people. Nothing lacking at all. But the afflictions necessary to make his word known in the world are many and are not completed. That's the idea here. There are afflictions that Christ must suffer in his body, through his people, in identity with his people, as his people labor and suffer and sacrifice in order that the word of God be made known in the world. We know that we are to imitate Christ's suffering uh, to do good to others. As Paul says in Ephesians 5, 2, love one another, uh, a walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So we to see Christ suffering for us and we are to sacrifice and suffer for others as he's done for us. 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So we must have that same sacrificing love for others that Christ had for us. But this passage gives it a bit of an edge or distinction, specificity, because this calls for us to suffer for the gospel to complete the sufferings necessary to make known the gospel. Wow. That's your calling. That's my calling. To sacrifice ourselves that the gospel be made known in the world. The word must go out to all the earth. Jesus must and will gather his sheep. And there's a replica of his suffering for our good that occurs when his people sacrifice themselves for the good of others. To suffer in order to proclaim the gospel of Christ. The whole point, the whole point of any suffering that we undergo, any affliction that we endure is ultimately to make Christ known by our lives, by our words. That's the whole point of our lives, is to manifest Christ. And so pointedly here, Paul says, I'm filling up by making Christ known. And notice how specific it is. It's for the sake of his body, it's for the church, uh, that for which I became a servant, according to God's stewardship, To what? To make the word of God fully known. It literally reads, to fulfill the word of God. And this could have the sense of fill out the word, like spread it widely. 
In Romans 15, it seems that Paul indicates this. But in this particular passage, we'll see, we'll get to it more, but just to mention, he specifies what he means by making that word fully known by causing people, as he proclaims Christ, to be fully mature in Christ. That is, this word is has has been fulfilled when in the lives of people they become complete in Christ. So all of his suffering and all of his agonizing labor is to make this word fully known so that God's people will be built up and mature in Christ. And obviously, and this is true for any minister of the word, unless the stewardship is, unless this word is made known, the stewardship fails. That's the stewardship particularly of ministers, but it's also a stewardship for the people of God. But particularly for ministers, if he does a whole lot of different things in his life, but he doesn't make the word fully known, then his stewardship is wasted. That's the point. That is the point of stewardship, is to make this word known. That word is what will change people's lives. That word is what will encourage them. That word is what will prepare them for difficulty and for death itself. It's that word. And if he ignores that word to do anything else, he has been unfaithful to his stewardship. And you and I need to realize as well that others have suffered in history and if without their suffering, we wouldn't have heard the gospel. People have shed their blood, and only because they shed their blood and sacrificed and left family and home do we even have the gospel ourselves. And so, though Christ suffered in this unique way to bear our sins, uh, to, to bear the, the wrath of God and to bear our sins on the cross, we do suffer as we make known and bear the good news of the love of this Christ who has suffered. And you and I must ask the question, how is God calling us to suffer? How is God calling us to sacrifice our time for people, to sacrifice our goods for people, our money, and to sacrifice to have relationships with people in order that they would have the gospel. We each have to ask that question. How is God calling me to gladly suffer and sacrifice for the sake of making known this this precious word? And interestingly, this though this suffering certainly takes the form of persecution this word translated afflictions can include every kind of trial and tribulation that we may face as his people. The cares and efforts to maintain ourselves as a body of Christ. It includes the difficult matters of mutual accountability and mutual encouragement and rebuke, efforts at reconciliation and peacemaking, the difficulties of working in the midst of shattered relationships and tragedies and losses and sickness and chronic pain and death, 
the affliction of struggling with temptation and struggling with guilt over repeated failures and struggling with doubts and struggling with what one is called the agonizing anxieties of the Christian responsibilities for family and church. All of these are part of our afflictions that we suffer in our daily life with this ultimate goal in mind. Enable me to make known Christ. Enable me to live out Christ. Enable me to manifest Christ in all that I do. And so we can summarize our life like Paul did in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, we're constantly bearing about the death of Jesus in order that the life of Christ might be manifested in us. Right? Welcome to your calling. (laughs) That sounds pretty rough. He calls you to die and to sacrifice and to find in that the ultimate joy of a human being and the ultimate hope in Christ Jesus. Well... Just a word then about this word that we sacrifice for. He calls it a mystery. Mystery doesn't mean that it's uh, something we can't figure out, but this is a technical word describing what for so long was not known and then was revealed in Christ, and now it has been revealed in Christ. And notice... It's hidden for ages and generations, now revealed to the saints, to all saints. It's not a hidden thing. It's not a little special club, special knowledge, that kind of thing. It's open and available to everybody. And then he enlarges uh, about this mystery and says it is, uh, he talks about the riches of the glory of this mystery. this, This mystery has glory that overflows that is abundant. Uh, It's glory bursting at the seams. It's the difference in a family getting a sack of grain that is mainly just sack and has a little bit of grain at the bottom, you know, and it can kind of swing it around. You can just picture that little bit of grain versus this big, solid sack of grain that you can barely tie at the top and it takes three or four family members to carry it away, right? That's the Word of God. That's the riches bursting with life, bursting with glory, bursting with beauty, bursting with none other than the beauty of Jesus Christ. Because he says, Him we proclaim in verse 28. And he talks about the mystery. The mystery is not so much God's plan, though it includes that, but the mystery is a person. It's Christ. Christ is the content of this mystery. Christ is the centerpiece and everything runs from Christ. Everything is drawn to Christ. He is that sack of grain that has all wealth in Him, all of salvation in Him, all transformation in Him, all forgiveness in Him, all hope of the future, the new heavens and the new earth, the resurrection, everything is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. The glorious riches That are in Christ. That is so much like his statement earlier, or earlier at least in this, uh, in our Bible, uh, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse uh, 8, where he says, To me, the very least of saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. 
So similar, isn't it? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Here he calls it the riches of the glory, which is Christ. And notice, he, this is an interesting way to put it. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, which is your hope of glory. And the hope of glory is the hope of receiving glory, the hope of being glorified in that last day, the hope of experiencing the glory of God and being transformed by that glory into glory yourself. It's the hope of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the hope of the resurrection. But he says Christ in you is this hope of glory. It's interesting in uh, other places, Paul talks about the Holy Spirit being a guarantee of our future inheritance, the indwelling of the Spirit. Or in Romans 8, he says, if you have the Spirit, the Spirit of Christ is in you, then you know that that Spirit's going to raise you from the dead as well. So these other passages talk about the indwelling of the Spirit, as this one does, the indwelling of Christ being your hope of, of glory. But I want to underscore one part of this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in us basically communicates this, that we own Christ, we have Christ, and if God has given us Christ, He will give us all things. Okay, I would, I would call your attention back to Romans 8.32. If He didn't spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not with Him freely give us all things? Or, as Paul talks about this in Romans eight uh, 5, he says, Here's our hope. The, the, the Spirit pours out the love of God in our hearts. And He shows us that God loved us even while we were yet sinners. Well, if God loved us while we were sinners and enemies, and He reconciled us while we hated Him, now that we're reconciled, you know He's going to save us from the wrath to come. That's basically Paul's argument. And he says the Holy Spirit works in us to convince us of that love of God. Look, God loved you when you were an enemy. He's certainly going to save you now that he's brought you to himself. He's going to save you in that day. He's going to save you from the coming wrath. Because when you hated him, he came after you. That's some of what is intended here, you see. Christ in you. If you have Christ, if God has given you his Son... He will give you everything. And so this basically means, Christ in us means the love of God in us, the conviction and assurance of God's love to give us hope every day of our life. God is for me today. God will be for me tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And I have glory laid out for me, not because I deserve it, but because I have Christ. And Christ brings everything to me. We have hope for the final day of judgment. And that's why Paul could say uh, in Romans 5, now that we're justified, we have hope of the glory of God. We have hope of the glory of God. And brothers and sisters, this hope should not be an afterthought for you and me. Paul means that this is the centerpiece of the gospel, really. And in fact... It seems that when he says that we're to be complete in Christ, if you take just this context, to be complete in Christ is to have full hope in Christ. 
full hope in Christ. Because that's the, that's the whole point of Christ is this hope of glory. The hope of glory means hope for every minute up to that point too. The hope that goodness and mercy follows me all the days of my life and will follow me right into judgment. And goodness and mercy will protect me in that day. My whole life is governed by goodness and mercy. My whole life is governed by hope. And the taking of the Lord's Supper, you see, is a renewal of our hope. It's a renewal of God's guarantee that He has loved us and given His Son for us. When we were enemies, He did this. And now, because of what He's done for us and His Son, He sits down with us at table and gives us the riches of His Son. He has communion with us. And this is a token of our final marriage supper uh, with the Lamb. And so, our experience of Christ in the supper is one aspect of this statement of Paul's Christ in you, the hope of glory. The supper is basically Christ for you, the hope of glory. You get to feed upon Him. He's your hope of glory. The hope for today. The hope against your sins. The hope against the struggles in relationship. The hope against your temptations. The hope against your doubts. The hope against failure in whatever area of life. The hope against financial disaster. The hope in every part of your life. So, the hope of glory, I want this to be large for us. Not just kind of, yeah, I know, I'm going to get to go to heaven. you know. But it means something that really changes the way you live each day, the way you think about your day, the way you approach the issues of your day, the way you approach relational struggles. Brothers and sisters, you get to approach these in the, in the atmosphere of hope. Hope. And so Paul, then having talked about suffering and, and telling us the nature of this word, you can see why he suffers for it. And isn't this amazing that we suffer in order to bring hope to the hopeless in this world? That's what we suffer for. We're extending this hope. People don't have any hope. People deny the meaning of death. They deny what's really happening in their lives. We alone have hope in this dark world and it's worth suffering for. It's worth sacrificing for that we would extend this hope to people who do not have it. And this is, I think, in effect what Paul is saying then. Him, this Christ, the hope of glory, is the one we proclaim. We warn, and and these are, he has these awes. We warn every person, teach every person, so we can present every person mature in Christ. And that ultimately has its goal in the final presentation before Christ. And so it's very much like what is said earlier in this chapter when he says he's reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in that final day. And Paul says, exactly what I'm laboring for, exactly what I'm teaching for, exactly where I'm proclaiming the word so that I might present the people of God uh, to the Lord Jesus 
uh, mature in Christ, particularly that they might have this firm hope of the love of God that pursues them every day, of the favor of God that they have in Christ. The hope of glory means hope for every single part of your life. And so as we're convinced of God's love for us in Christ and His abundant favor for us, and we have this hope, it gives us uh, grace then to lose ourselves uh, for others. And isn't it, it this, this final verse when he says, For this I toil, there's that uh, agonizing labor. And he uses word after word, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works. There are four words about God's power that are laden here uh, to, to underscore how God is all about uh, giving Paul all that he needs for this. And brothers and sisters, however God's going to call you uh, to manifest Christ and, and to, be, to give the full New Testament picture, the primary thing the New Testament talks about is how you live out your life before the world. Not, it doesn't, although proclaiming the word is essential to your neighbor, the emphasis is on living out love to your neighbor and then presenting opportunities where they will ask, what's the hope that you have? And isn't it interesting when Peter talks about this in 1 Peter, he says, when someone asks you about the hope that is in you, the hope that is in you. Your life marked by resiliency. Your, mar- your life marked by an ability to give yourself what other people would feel exhausted. They just couldn't keep loving people like you keep loving them. What makes you tick? How, how, what fuels this? Why do you constantly have this energy to do good to people? Where is this coming from? Where's the hope that you have? I've seen you go through this struggle. I, I saw you in the loss of this loved one. Where do you have this hope? Where do you get it? So this emphasis on Paul's part, <clears throat> that, that this, this central part of who Christ is <clears throat> that gives us hope, final hope for glory, and then hope for every day of our life that enables us <clears throat> to care for others, uh, you can see how it's, it just is a wonderful circle, a wonderful circle. That he suffers, proclaims this hope. We have this hope. We live out this hope. And we call others to this hope as well. May God give you grace. May God give us all grace. That we will ask, Lord, how might I joyfully suffer, joyfully sacrifice time and goods and sacrifice my fears in order that I might make Christ known. Let us pray. Lord, we see the example of Paul and it's easy for us to distance ourselves from him. And of course, he was an apostle. We're not. He lived in the first century. We're in the 21st century. However, these words are given to us so that we ourselves, who especially as, as ministers and elders lead the word, lead the people of God in the word, it's a call to us to labor diligently and to struggle 
and to suffer however we need to to make this word known to these people and to others to to make the word known so that people can be mature in Christ. But it's a call for all of us, Lord, to be a part of this process and we pray that you would enable us as a church to be marked with a suffering joy because we want Christ to be made known. Lord, may we imitate you in this. May we be caught up in your life in this. You are our suffering Savior. You call us to this life to suffer with you and for you. And you suffer in us. You attend us. Lord, you nourish and cherish us because we are your body and never more than when we suffer for your sake. And even Paul says that he wants to know more of those sufferings and to be perfected in those sufferings. Lord, I don't fully understand all of that. But help us to enter into that. Help us to know that fellowship with you. And Lord, what a noble thing it is that we might be called to sacrifice to make known the one hope that there is in this world. Give us grace, Lord. Give us grace so that knowing your acceptance and love, knowing the, the perfect hope that we have in Christ, we may be set free to give ourselves away. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.